Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. The thirst for spirituality and meaning is a defining characteristic of our times. In Be, Become, Bless, Jewish Spirituality Between East and West, Yaakov Nagin presents a Jewish approach to transforming the way we see and live our lives. Join us as we talk with Yaakov Nagin about his work, Be, Become, Bless. You're listening to New Books in Jewish Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm your host, Michael Morales. Yaakov Nagin is a senior rabbi at the Otniel Yeshiva in Israel, where he teaches Talmud, Halakha, Jewish thought, and Kabbalah. He also serves as director of Or Torah Stone's Beit Midrash for Judaism and Humanity. Yaakov, welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. It's great to be back, Michael. Thanks for, thank you for inviting me. So, Yaakov, you've been on our show before, but please tell us more about yourself. Yes, yeah, certainly. I grew up in Manhattan, but I moved to Israel in 1993. And the village I live in, when I actually used to have fewer people than the building I grew up in Manhattan. Um, I have seven children, and one of in, in my book's title, I have the word blessing. And I always say that um, I, I, my, me and my wife are like a bride and groom, because at a Jewish wedding, there are always seven blessings. So these are, for us, our daily blessings of our children. And for the last 24 years, I've been teaching at a yeshiva in the town I live called Otniel. A yeshiva, um, it's full-time study of Judaism, Bible, Talmud, not necessarily for people who are going to be rabbis, but Judaism believes that all should be scholars. And recent years, I've been very involved with interfaith um, dialogue, originally with Eastern religions. But then I started focusing on, um, on the Middle East, hoping that peace that religion could be a force for peace. So in particular, I'm in dialogue with Islam. And I take a lot of inspiration from the Jewish Christian dialogue, which has had such great strides in the last 50, 60 years. I hope this gives a model for how Judaism and Christianity could ultimately build bridges with Islam. Would you explain the title and subtitle of your book for us? It's Be, Become, Bless, Jewish Spirituality Between East and West. What was your goal in writing this book? Certainly. Well, maybe I'll have to tell the story about how it all began. There was, uh, um, years ago, there was a festival uh, about the deal with spirituality in Israel and a very Eastern orientation. And I thought to speak there about the connection between the Om and Shalom. Om is the syllable that represents the unity of existence in Eastern spirituality, whereas Shalom 
phonetically includes the Om. So I spoke about the similarities between them, how it's used in prayers um, and teachings and its meaning, but also, of course, pointing out that Shalom is different than Om. It's a little bit longer. And there's a profound teaching of the Zohar, a book of Jewish mysticism, that teaches that the word Shalom, the first letter of Shalom in Hebrew is Shin, which represents what in Hebrew, which in fire is Esh. The last letter of Shalom is Mem, which stands for Mayim, water in Hebrew. Shalom is not, it's about integrating fire and water. And from that, that developed the philosophy about that Shalom and Judaism as integrating elements that we are familiar with in Western civilization society and those which in Eastern spirituality. If water, um, about the water and the fire changing the world and accepting reality, or as doing and being in concepts of spirituality, doing is about changing the world, focusing on the future. Being is about being present in the here and now, working on your inner self. So feeling that the land of Israel really is located between West and trying to show how in many ways the Bible, Torah, and Judaism are, are an integration of, of these two principles. So the title, the original title, Be, Become, Bless. Be is about the being. Become is also leading to the being. But bless, bless is something active. I feel that um, we have to bless the world. It's not about our own um, inner presence. Um, and that's the Jewish spirituality between East and West. For me, East symbolizes being, living in the present, um, and doing is about changing the world. For example, in, in the Jewish week, um, or in the Ten Commandments, actually, it says six days do work, seventh day, Sabbath. Why? Because God, six days, created the world, and on the seventh day, was he was um, Shabbat, Sabbath. And I see it's, this is that, that doing and being. Six days about doing, creating the world, building the world, fixing the world. And one day, Shabbat, in Judaism, we don't do, um, you stay put where you begin the Shabbat. You don't do labor. Um, so it's about presence, about being in this moment, in this place. Your chapters follow the weekly Torah portion. Now, for our listeners who are unfamiliar with this practice, would you explain it for us? Okay, so within Judaism, within the Bible, there's a special status for the first five books of the Bible, um, referred to as the Torah, um, from Genesis through Deuteronomy. And every year, in every synagogue, they read through the entire Torah, which is divided into 55 portions, there aren't 54 weeks to the year, so sometimes we have a double portion. And we see as, so every year, hopefully, that every Jew is going through the entire Torah. And somehow I feel there's something magical and mystical about the Torah, that we have a work which was revealed to the world thousands of years ago. But I find incredible how every person in almost every life experience can open that book and find it speaks to them and gives them enlightenment. I mean, I can't think of, I'm a big fan of Harry Potter, The Little Prince and many other books, but somehow the multi-dimensions, how for thousands of years, so many millions of people 
have opened up that weekly portion and then spoken to them and their fears and their needs and have guided them, I feel this is something that gives me, me personally a deep spiritual sense of something beyond. When we look for God in the world, sometimes in nature, sometimes in history, I feel by reading the weekly parsha, the weekly section of the Bible, I feel God talking to me. In some of your chapters, particularly in Genesis, you talk about relationships in the family and how they serve as a backdrop for relations between Abrahamic religions. Would you speak to this idea? Certainly. The book of Genesis presumably tells us about birth of a nation, but it talks not about politics. It talks a lot about family and in some ways, very painful family relations. It starts with um, Cain and Abel, um, which a story of murder. And later among Abraham, his children, there's constant conflict, whether Isaac and Ishmael, whether Jacob and Esau, whether Joseph and his brothers, and all the, stri- all the struggles between brothers might make one think much better to have sisters, right? But if we look closely, these stories tell about tensions and, and rivalry in a family. But ultimately, each of these stories, there are different levels of reconciliation. My father-in-law, who's a professor of Bible, Oriel Simon, points out that the three stories of generations of struggles between brothers each end with a burial scene where they come together to bury their common father. Isaac and Ishmael, their story ends burying Abraham, their father. We also find uh, um, Jacob and Esau together burying their father. And the book of Genesis ends with Joseph and his brothers. And symbolically, this is saying that ultimately we could find our place to connect. And of course, the stories themselves tell about the connection. We know that um, when Jacob returns to the land of Israel, he's met with Esau with 400 men. And clearly this wasn't a welcoming party, but Esau in still festering his anger against um, Jacob for taking the birthright uh, and the blessings. But ultimately there's reconciliation. And in their reconciliation, um, Esau hugs and kisses Jacob And then it says they both weep together. And the Jewish commentaries point out a very significant message true even today, I believe. They point out that sometimes in the tensions between the Jewish people and the world, sometimes because of the traumas of the Jewish people, they're not able to take the first step in reconciliation. And the non-Jewish world sometimes is able to take that step and then if the Bible began in the singular of a hug and kiss of Esau, ultimately the crying is plural. They cry together. So I feel that um, we have to be open to initiatives, but ultimately we have to answer them. And I feel there are opportunities that are lost in that biblical story because Esau tells Jacob, let's walk, go together. And then Jacob says, no, you know, we have the babies, woman, it will slow you down, or clearly he's just, he's in understandable fear to go together with Asaph. But it makes me think, what would have happened had they gone together? Maybe so much future conflicts could have been solved. By Joseph and his brothers also, we have, we have that reconciliation, the jealousy of the brothers about the favoritism of Jacob for Joseph leads to hatred and selling him to Egypt. 
But ultimately, they overcome that jealousy when Judah understands that his father Jacob loves Benjamin more than him. Instead of that turning into anger, it turns to empathy to his father, and, he's, and he offers to sacrifice himself to save Benjamin. And this turnabout is a true turnabout of reconciliation. And I think this is a message. There's so many conflicts in our lives, in our families, in our people, and between our religions. And what the Bible teaches us is to realize that these can be overcome because ultimately we're all family. Yaakov, your meditations have a warm and personable character as you include insightful everyday illustrations. In your chapter called Spiritual Initiation in the Desert, you take a seemingly dry passage such as Numbers 33, which simply gives a long list of Israel's journeys through the wilderness, and you illustrate it with profound biographical material from Rabbi David Zeller. Would you tell us about that? Certainly. Um, First of all, Rabbi Zeller was a close friend of mine. He actually was born Jewish, but actually was involved, became a sadhu, which is a Indian Hindu holy man living in India, um, until he had a transformative experience where in meditating the mantra of the Jewish people in Hebrew, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Hero Israel, God is our God, God is one, came to him and that led to a a process of him returning to his Jewish roots and becoming a rabbi. One thing I found special about him, sometimes people that make radical changes in their lives really turn against um, the stages that were before that. And I feel sometimes doing injustice. So I feel he, um, although he left his involvement with Eastern spirit religions, He always had continued with great respect and insight from all the stages that led him to where he ultimately became as a rabbi. Now, one thing I found very telling about about his spiritual experiences, how much these open our eyes to understand the Bible. And I think one important point is in our global age, we have to be careful not to be eclectic. Uh, one teaching I heard for, actually from a guru in India is that he said, there are many ways to the top of the paths to the top of the mountain. But if you keep changing paths in the middle, you're never going to get there. Um, so stick to one path based on your tradition. And But in that truth, I feel, so what is the significance of Jews, Christians, Muslims, other religions learning from each other? It's not to become eclectic. But somehow, by listening to others, we can understand things more deeper, deep about our own traditions. And I feel that um, Zeller, in his autobiography, his experiences uh, um, as a sadhu opened my eyes to points that appear in the Bible. For example, he mentions that part of the, being a sadhu, a Indian holy man, is not um, is not having possessions. Every day, whatever you get from God, that's what you get. And at the beginning, he didn't take any chances. And he tells about being invited somewhere and sticking all sorts of extra food at the place that offers some food in his pockets or whatnot. Um, but that evening, he uh, invited to a place, a gala feast, and had more than he could want to eat and had nothing to do with what he'd stored away. And his feeling about that training of really looking at today, looking to find the blessings in today. 
Um, but reading that, I said, wait a second. This is the story of the man from heaven. God tells us, don't store it. Don't, you get your blessings from God today. Have faith tomorrow again. We'll have, will there be blessings and be able to really live, um, live today with the blessings of today. And um, other messages. One thing is there's a story that once his eyes were really focusing on this wagon filled with this brown sugar. And his spiritual teacher said, you know, you want that sugar? So he sent him to the person who grows the sugar, says, tell him I sent you and tell him he should give you as much as he wants. So he went there and he ate and he ate and ate more sugar than he's ever eaten before. And after that, he couldn't stand the sight of that brown sugar. And also in the biblical story of the Jewish people saying, we don't want the manna. We want, we, uh, want meat. And then they ate the meat till it came out of their noses because, again, feeling that some way to, to educate people, give them the, instead of denying it, give them what they want and let them realize themselves that this is not really what they need. So that and other, so I feel that my studies of other traditions, try, I hope to stay very bound to my tradition, but I find I could be deeper and understand better even my sacred um, works. The next chapter is The Blood of the High Priest on Numbers 35 and the Cities of Refuge. Would you summarize your thoughts there for us? Right. So I find, again, it's a very fascinating story. The, um, somebody, the story is, he says, manslaughter. Somebody killed somebody else. He was negligent, um, but he certainly didn't intend to do anything. Um, and nevertheless, the message is he must live outside of the community until the high priest dies. Now, first of all, the fact that they have this punishment in general, not a lot, um, I think is very telling. The Bible says that he cannot compensate by giving money. Um, and in fact, it's a very profound teaching of the late Professor Moshe Greenberg. He points out that in the Bible, um, there are no monetary payments for people for injuries on body. So on the other hand, for people that have done um, acts against property, there aren't any bodily punishments. Meaning if you steal, you have to pay money. You don't get your hand cut off. If you kill somebody, you can't give money instead of that. And here too, the Bible says it's in manslaughter, but nevertheless, only blood can redeem blood. And in a case of murder, it would mean a deliberate murder. The Bible has a death penalty for a deliberate murderer. But here we have a person who did not intend to kill. He was negligent. He did something wrong. But the statement is that we can't go on as if nothing's happened. A person has died. The world has been contaminated by that. This is not a minor thing. You can't pay money or something like that to overcome that. You must be in exile. But to get out there, somehow to, cosmically to respond to that, there has to be something of similar stature. But on one hand, this, um, the manslaughter, he didn't really do something evil. He didn't intend to do something evil. He does not deserve to die. But on the other hand, we're tormented that we can't ignore that he did kill somebody. So the Bible's response is saying that when the high priest dies, his blood will redeem that of all of, of that manslaughter. Which, is, which I feel is very connected to the idea about the interconnection of all life. We know the famous poem by, I think, John Donne. Um, 
And I apologize. I think in Hebrew, so I apologize for all the things in English, especially names of biblical figures that I'm not translating to English in the way it's normally pronounced. But anyway, the famous poem for whom the, bell, the bells toll and ultimately the bells toll for me. To say that the interconnection of life and humanity is that if something in me dies, if someone dies, something in me dies. And the vision of the high priest is a, he is the representative of, of all of the Jewish people. He goes into the temple to receive atonement for them. So because he represents all of us, um, his death could be something in atonement for all of us. I think it's in some level, I think this is parallel to some different parallel ideas in Christianity um, about um, there it's used, and you stand for the death of Jesus, um, where, where, but in Judaism also believes in the interconnection of life and the idea of, of not only a saintly, saintly person, but a person who is representing all of us. So somehow his death, his blood is something which is um, which is somehow responding to that to that tragedy and allowing that manslaughter to return to, to the community. So this book has been translated into both Italian and Chinese. And I know there's a story about the Chinese. Would you tell us about that? I was very moved and grateful with, without having solicited it. My book was translated into Chinese. And I understand it was primary, it was on the internet. Um, and primarily the... the were primarily either Chinese, of course, they're, they're not Chinese Jews, but Chinese either learning for spirituality and also a large group were Christians. Um, and in fact, an art gallery invited me to China in wake of the translation to give a lecture series. And again, I feel that somehow the meeting different people from different places always the way to awaken new thinking and new ideas. And one thing I try to work on is realizing that every audience you have to re- think it's about what, what do they need to hear from you? It's not, it can't be one thing for all. Um, the Talmud says that there are shivim panim Torah, 70 faces of the Torah, um, that there are many, and to think about even societies. What, so I thought about Chinese society. Chinese society is very traditional and individuality and, and debate and voicing your own, own opinions are often not encouraged, which I'm sure has only um, become more so under communism. So I thought if I wanted to share maybe messages to talk more about humanity, to talk about individuality, at least perhaps messages for the Chinese people. So maybe two short anecdotes from that. One, I give one lecture about the, idea, the biblical idea of all of humanity created in the image of God. And I also spoke about one of the approaches um, to what that means. Um, Rabbi Cook, for example, says the ability of us to choose, to choose between what path we take, between good and evil, it's that ability to choose which differentiates us from the animal kingdom and gives our, our, our divine image. So the day after the, the first lecture, one of the students comes back and he sees very excited. I say, what happened? He says, you know, I went to a Chinese restaurant after the lecture. You know, in China, they have Chinese restaurants. And I looked at this old, crumpled up waiter sitting in the corner of the room. And I thought to myself, what is Rabbi Yaakov kidding me? That old waiter, he looks like a million other Chinese waiters. 
He's a Selim Elohim. He's in the image of God. And then he said, but suddenly that um, the waiter looked at me and realized that I'm looking at him. Now the student gets excited. He says, he made a choice. He could have ignored me. He could have been angry at me. What he chose to do was to give me a beautiful smile. It's in that choice I saw his image of God. And, and another lecture I gave about individuality, and I used as a title something said by um, a friend of mine, a rabbi. There was a, fa- a, a tragic story a few years ago where terrorists kidnapped three boys, actually from the yeshiva where my sons were also studying. Um, they were hitchhiking, and for a long time, the country looked everywhere for them, and there was a hope that they might still be alive. And there was a feeling that tremendous unity was in the country in the search for these boys. And ultimately, they found that they had been murdered by the terrorists. But at the funeral, um, my friend, the, or the principal of that school said, so what is the Jewish people? Two Jews, three opinions one heart. And I gave that as the name of the lecture. I'm talking about that we could have different opinions. Nevertheless, we have um, to disagree, to argue, but push comes to self, we really have one heart. And a Chinese girl raises her hands and says, excuse me, you know, you could, that rabbi could have said two people, two opinions, one heart. Why was it three opinions? Where did the three come from? So I didn't know what the answer was. So when teachers don't know the answer, they always look at the students and says, what do you think? And she says, well, I think, I think it's because if two people have one heart, people don't have one heart, they'll just argue and nothing's going to come out of it. But if two people come together and they're really listening and they have one heart, they begin with two opinions but ultimately in the meeting between them, something new will be created. And that's the third opinion. So from China, I called the rabbi who had said that. I said, Rabbi Dove, what did you, what were you thinking when you said two Jews, three opinions? So he says, what do you think? So anyway, so then I, I shared the beautiful insight of that young Chinese woman. So Yaakov, what else are you working on these days? Yes, so I'm really working a lot about issues of Judaism and humanity. I feel part of in our global era. And also in this dramatic chapter in the story for the Jewish people of the return to the land of Israel, um, the same way that their prophets, prophecies about the return to Israel, they're also about a world of which there's partnership throughout all of humanity um, in serving God and calling to God and also peace between us. So I feel this is really the mission that I'm trying to devote myself. So first I'm working within Jewish sources to, in a new lights, issues of interfaith, um, because I feel as a persecuted minority, uh, the survival need was to be very insular. Now I feel that in, 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 there's greater security to be more open um, to connecting and let some walls down so that we could connect in a positive way. Some writing in terms from a Jewish perspective, but also involved with having Jews learn more about both um, Christianity and Islam, um, because um, to feel to help build a, a new world. So we're having we're actually supposed to have a tour of the old city, 
last week, except that half of the people had COVID, so we delayed it to meet different Christians in the old city of Jerusalem and also um, from, from to understand the stories in the New Testament by being in, in the sites that the stories actually happened. Um, and also with Islam, I feel that ultimately, I feel that there's many challenges and within Islam itself and especially fundamentalistic Islam. But I think if we have a hope in the future, we have to be partners to make that happen. And part of it is trying to find how can we create a different relationships between these different children of Abraham. Yaakov, thank you for being with us. It's been great hearing about your book, Be, Become, Bless. Thank you, Mike. You give me a temptation to write another book so I could get to see you again. Do it, please. This is a good incentive. Okay, take care, Michael. Blessings. Blessings. Friends, you've been listening to New Books in Jewish Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.